It is a great um, privilege to be teaching the Word of God. Um, many, many years ago, the Lord, uh, late teens, the Lord grabbed hold of my life. Uh, lots of turmoil going on in my family, and I was pretty desperate. Um, and decided the Lord was calling me and I just kind of grabbed hold of him and he grabbed hold of me. Uh, and one of the things that happened early on was giving me a real hunger for the scriptures. And I always loved the Old Testament and um, I was hungry to learn the scriptures. And, um, but I also had uh, a lot of turbulent stuff happen in our family. Um, and my mum took me out of school when I was 15 to work in her businesses. She was a single uh, mum, parents divorced, and uh, I loved school. I went to a, a girls' grammar school and learned a few years of Chinese and French and loved school. And then all of a sudden, my life changed, and uh, a lot of painful years of working in my mum's businesses. And um, But it was through that time that the Lord took hold of me and um, continued to give me a love for his word. And then I really felt God calling me to go to Bible college. I just was going to go to Bible college for one year. Good plan. Uh, and Ricky Watts, who is a graduate from Gordon-Conwell, who has written on Isaiah's New Exodus in Mark, among other things, was teaching, and he was showing how Isaiah's work was being fulfilled and how it was being taken up in Mark's gospel. And it was the first, I'd been to a Baptist church that was good preaching, but it was the first time I saw the connection between Isaiah and Malachi and John the Baptist. And it was like, <laughs> and I thought, I want that. That's what I want. And so I just started taking some extra classes. I started at Bible college as a diploma student because I didn't have a high school certificate. And I was hungry. And so I took classes with him and stayed another year and took other classes with him and other, others. And I was hungry to learn the scriptures. And then I finished a three-year diploma in missions, and I thought I might go to the Philippines, and God had done a lot of things in my life, and I loved the Lord, and I'd been involved with evangelism and with ministry, with homeless. And then um, when I graduated after my three-year diploma, Rick Watts, who's also Pentecostal, said, I've been praying about you. I think God's got his hand on you. I think you're going to become a theologian. I'm like... <laughs> Like, yeah, right. I was still hungry. And he said, well, if you're really hungry to learn the scriptures, you've really got to learn Greek. Hated my first year of Greek. Hated it. Do I hear an amen? <laughs> Hated my first year of Greek. And he said, well, I just, I said, I've got a real hunger for the scriptures and I want to learn and I'm really interested in the Old Testament. It's like, well, you know what that means? <laughs> got to learn Hebrew. And I hated my first year of Hebrew. <laughs> Amen, yes. <laughs> and I thought that I would do one year of Hebrew and then I'm done. 
And I said that, I'm so pleased, and I've got the languages over with. And he like looked at me like, what do you mean, got them over with? Then I started praying about what God would have me do. My church was looking for an associate pastor. I was on the search committee. They couldn't find someone. The people on the committee came up and said, we feel like God's calling you to be part of and be associate pastor, youth pastor at our church. I prayed about it for a few months. And I felt God saying no. So I said no to them. And then one morning, I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and as clear as day, I felt God say to me, I want you to study overseas. Now, you need to know, Australians don't study overseas. We don't come to America. You don't have Vegemite to begin with, but apart from that, <laughs> yes! <laughs> I didn't care for the Vegemite jokes, just so you know. <laughs> I like Vegemite a lot. <laughs> Five o'clock in the morning, woke me up, study overseas. I didn't tell anyone, except for my sister. I called up my sister. I said, I think God wants me to study overseas. I didn't tell anyone. And you know why I didn't tell anyone? Because I didn't think I could do it. And then I eventually talked with Rick and I said, I feel like God's calling me to study overseas. And he said, what about, what do you want to study? And I said, the Bible. <laughs> I said, well, I think you need to go to Good and Conwell. So I applied to Good and Conwell and had been praying, had read George Mueller's book at the time about tell God about your finances, not other people. So we didn't tell, except for my immediate family, didn't tell people. And people are going, when are you going to go? I got accepted. When are you going to go to Conwell? I'm like, oh, a few things have got to happen still. And then at the last moment, um, I just realized this wasn't coming together. And it was in the early morning, and I wrote a letter to Gordon Conwell and said, I really, um, I had thought I'd be able to go, but it looks like I can't go now because I really just don't have the finances. And the Lord really led me to the scripture, faithful is he who has called you and he will bring it to pass. And I put that in the letter. And then the next day I received a letter before I sent off the other one to say that I received an international scholarship that covered for my tuition. So um, I left to go to Gordon Conwell and it was a painful leaving um, because there'd been lots of family stuff going on and my mum had been um, uh, alcoholic for a lot of years and she just had given up drinking about two months beforehand. So it was, it was a bittersweet. Um, and when I left to study at Gordon Conwell, I didn't think I would be staying there. I thought I'd be going back home. Uh, I met my husband while I was in, at school there, and then we started dating. It was a bit on-off. Then I went back to Australia for six months teaching at the Bible College. And then the Lord opened up um, a scholarship for me to go to Cambridge as well, So, which I did that for a couple of years. And... Um, all the while, never to do a career, but because I love the scriptures. And so um, when I was, people often say to me, when I hear about casket empty, what we were talking about um, earlier, and people go, oh, did you do that for your dissertation? I'm like, no, <laughs> I was doing that in between because I wanted to help people learn the scriptures. And so um, it really is a gift to be able to teach and to um, share the scriptures 
Um, but also, I don't come with one... I've come with one who's studied hard. And so, when I have students in class, I'm like, you know what? I'm not making you to do things I haven't done myself. And part of it, when you're trying to put this story together, whether it's Chronicles or other things, is it requires study and work and connecting. How does it all fit together? But we do it because it is the Word of God, and it is living and breathing, and it is what gives us life and the God who reveals himself. But as we start to look at also with Solomon tonight, I just want to be reminded as we start to think about the life of Solomon in the temple that the temple is all about the presence of God among his people. And this whole narrative about Solomon, who takes nine years to build the temple, the temple is not the goal. And the glory of God's presence filling the temple is not even the goal, as wonderful as that is. Because the temple is a place for prayer. And so prayer, the whole prayer of Solomon, which we're going to look at, is the highlight and the climax of the nine years of building the temple. The climax is the prayer and his praying to God. That's the point of the temple, the presence of God and prayer. And I want to suggest even more so is that it is not only Solomon's prayer to God, but God is a God who answers prayer. And so Chronicles records God's answer to, I've heard your prayer. And he speaks back. And as we start to look at this topic with Solomon, I want to remind us that a relationship with the living God is dialogue not monologue. A relationship with the living God is dialogue, not monologue. Monologue is what you do with an idol. Because the idols that are sitting in the temple, remember there's no idol in this temple. It's unheard of not to have an idol sitting in the temple. But the idols of the ancient world have eyes, but they cannot see. They have mouths, they cannot speak. They have ears that they cannot hear because it is monologue. You tell the idol what you want it to do and it never speaks back to you. But the living God is in the temple and when people pray to him, he answers prayer. And so the whole structure is moving and that's what the chronicler wants to focus us on is the fact of the relationship that God is inviting us into, into prayer. And he's going to say the type of prayer and the type of posture that he listens to. And so that is going to be picked up in 2 Chronicles 7. But before we get there, I want to highlight just a couple of things um, just to lead up to the, uh, the temple narrative. 
So chapter 22 of First Chronicles, let's just give a couple of um, highlights of where we've come from and where we're headed. So David has been preparing for the temple and he says, this is the house of the, of the Lord God and this is the altar. And then in verse 5, he says, David said to Solomon, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced and the house is to be built is for the Lord who's exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all the lands. I will make preparations for it. So this is his preparations we've been talking about. Then in chapter 22, keep reading. David says to Solomon, verse 7, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord had come to me, saying, You've shed much innocent blood. We've already looked at that. You've been waging many wars. Uh, your son, verse 9, born to you shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest for all his enemies. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I'll be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Verse 11. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, divine presence, that you may be successful. Here we do have the word for success. Remember, we didn't have it before. This is the verb salach for success, that you will be successful, build the house of the Lord just as he has spoken to you. May the Lord give you discretion and understanding. Verse 13, then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and ordinances which the Lord has commanded. Verse 18, is not the Lord your God with you, and has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given you the inhabitants of the land, and the land is subdued. Language we've already looked at, picking up Genesis 1, 28. Verse 19, now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. This aspect of prayer, of seeking God's presence and build the sanctuary. So Solomon's going to become king. And then we have in these next few chapters, we have the role of the Levites chapter into three main families, chapter 23. I'm just going to go really quickly over these. Then we have in 1 Chronicles 24, we have the role of the priests and there's more genealogies given. And then in chapter 25, we have the musicians, why is David doing this? Because he's preparing all those who are going to be working in the temple and who are going to be serving, the whole logistics of it. And I just want you to notice in chapter 25, this is where we have our musicians. We have the sons of Asaph and we have Haman and Jeduthun. And notice that these musicians in chapter 25 verse 1 who were to prophesy. See that? It's interesting. The musicians have got the gift of prophecy. The language here is used of when the Spirit comes upon elders in Numbers 11 and they start to prophesy. It's used of prophets themselves. And in fact, these three members are also called seers, which is another word for a prophet. This elevates the role of the musicians that we've already mentioned. They are absolutely central to the whole life of Israel. And then just notice in verse 8 of chapter 25, which I've already mentioned, they cast lots for their duties, all alike, the small as well as the great, the teacher as well as the pupil. How do you work out who's going to play certain um, instruments? By lots. 
I think it's a great idea. So, I have a good friend of mine, um, Jay Sklar, who's written a commentary on Leviticus and um, in the Tyndale series. And uh, he called me up, I don't know, six months ago or so, and was asked, thinking about a decision about what to do with something. And he'd asked my, my advice. I'd had some background in some area. And, and then I talked to him a few months later, and I said, well, oh, what did you end up? what did you end up doing? And he's like, oh, it was a really tough thing. I could see the real value of doing this, and also I could see the value of not doing it. And I was asking the Lord, and I couldn't. And he said, so I, I just um, did lots. He said, I prayed beforehand, but I, I'm like, he's a Leviticus guy. I mean, that's what they do. Um, and they did that with the musicians. So chapter 27, the army, now turn to chapter 28. Again, emphasis on building the temple, verse 4. The Lord God of Israel chose me to be king. He has chosen Judah to be a leader. We've seen this with all the genealogies. Verse 5, of all my sons, the Lord has given me many. He's chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord. See that in verse 5. This is that these references, 1 Chronicles 17, 14, 2 Chronicles 13, 8, several of them, five of them mention the kingdom of the Lord. Verse 6, he said to me, your son Solomon is the one to build my house, for I have chosen him to be a son. Verse 7, I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments. Notice the conditional clause. We've talked about it. Verse 9 again. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart. He searches all the heart. If you seek him, he will let you find him. And he's chosen you. Be courageous. Verse 19 and 20 then says, God's given me a pattern. God's with you. And so then we have the offerings given in chapter 29 for the temple, which we looked at very briefly. We have both the king who gives his offerings for the temple, verse 6, the rulers, verse 9, the people giving generously with a willing heart. And then 1 Chronicles finishes in verse 22. It says, they made Solomon, the son of David, king, verse 23, and Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David. All right. Now we're hitting 2 Chronicles. Good. <laughs> so 2 Chronicles then starts to pick up the narrative with Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him. He was very great and so forth. Verse 9. I'm just going to highlight a couple of them before we get to the temple itself. Chapter 1, verse 9. Now the Lord God... Now, O Lord God, your promise to my father David is fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. And so God, he's going to ask God for wisdom. You're familiar with the story, and God gives him wisdom. And then he's going to start with his building of the temple in chapter 2. But just notice a few verses before that. It talks about his wealth and it talks about his horses. Okay. Verse 14, Solomon had chariots 
and horsemen, and it gives a whole lot of numbers. The king made silver and gold as plentiful as Jerusalem. Verse 16, and Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. Emphasis on his wealth and his horses frame the narrative. Deuteronomy 17 says, let me just read it. Deuteronomy 17 about the king, because it sets the context for Solomon. Chapter 17, when you enter the land and you say, we want to put a king over you, verse 15, you shall set a king from among your countrymen. Verse 16, the king shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself. That rings a bell. Or else his heart will turn away, for nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. So the king, not to have multiple wives, that's because it's foreign alliances, you're trusting in another nation. He's not to multiply horses because he's not a military, right? The victory is not on how many horses you have. And he's not to multiply silver and gold. What is the king to do? Oh, he's to write Bible verses every day. When he sits on his throne, he is to write for himself a copy of this law. Verse 19, it shall be with him. And he's to read it all the days of his life that he might learn to fear the Lord and that his heart might not be lifted up above his countrymen. Pride. So coming back to Solomon now, chapter 2, uh, he's going to build, he, he looks at getting um, uh, uh, chapters 2, 3, and 4 is going to describe the building of the temple, which takes nine years to build, and lots of information in here about the Phoenician artists and the wood that he's going to get from Lebanon, and each one of these aspects of the building you can look at actually and there's all kinds of archaeology and history about each one of these items here. Great detail is given in terms of the quality of the material, the gold and where it comes from and of course all the furnishings as the description is given in chapter 4 and we find when we come to chapter 5 that the Ark of the Covenant is then brought into the temple when it is being completed. And then at the end of chapter 5, God's glory comes, verse 14, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. So, temple's been built. God's glory comes as in the time of Moses when he built the tabernacle. And now you come to chapter 6, and we start to look at the prayer of Solomon. Scholars have said that this prayer is really providing the whole program for Israel in the days ahead. The prayer is giving the contours for the narrative going forward, 
And he starts to talk about who God is in the opening of the prayer in chapters 1 to 11. Verses 1 to 11, he talks about who God is. Blessed be God, verse 10. The Lord has fulfilled his word, which I have risen in the place of my father. And then the prayer moves and Solomon has this huge platform and he is on the platform and he kneels on his knees in verse 13 in the presence of all the assembly and he spreads out his hand toward heaven and then we have the next lot of the prayer. So he's kneeling and he's got his hands towards heaven in verse 13 starts talking about who God is, and I just want to share with you what the themes are that are picked up in this prayer and why it's important. So uh, we have the fact, of course, kneeling, the book I mentioned by Daniel Block talks about the posture of prayer, and he talks about kneeling, and he talks about how it's a lost art in the church today. Kneeling's important because we're going to come to the posture of humility before God. So the posture of kneeling is going to set the context. We also have lifting up the hands, which is used in oaths. It can be lifting up one hand, um, lifting up both hands in prayer as well. So what is this prayer all about and why is it so important? Well, what the prayer is all about is he, he's going to go throughout, he says, if someone sins, and he gives all different examples here, verse 20, verse 22, if a man sins against his neighbor, verse 23, then hear from heaven, act and judge and punish the wicked and justify the righteous, verse 24, if your people are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and they return to you and they confess your name and pray and make supplication, then hear from heaven and forgive. And he lists a whole series of curses of the Mosaic Covenant. And he says, if all these things have come upon us, what do we have to do if these things come? And we pray, and there's all vocabulary, prayer, supplication, turning, and then he says to God, if we confess, and he asks God to hear the prayer. All right, so that's kind of what it's going, what's taking place. The language of turning back is used, the language of prayer, the verb palal, to pray, occurs eight times in the chapter. We have the, the verb to make supplication, which is used throughout chapter 6, verse 24, to plead for mercy. And basically what he's saying in this prayer is when we're in the land of our enemies and all these things have come upon us, he's calling God's people to pray and to make supplication and he is asking God to hear that prayer. And in fact, the language of if they're in the land and they pray, this language gets picked up in the coming kings when they're in times of distress and when they pray and ask God for help. 
So it is setting the context for what's coming up next. And as we start to look at this, I just want to, and also foreigners in chapter verses 32 to 33, even if foreigners who do not belong to your people Israel and they've come from a distant land, they're called to pray as well. And this is setting the context for this period after the exile for the importance of prayer. Mark Bodas says, one cannot overestimate the impact of this second section of the prayer on the liturgical practices of the exilic and post-exilic communities. So we spoke at the beginning of the time after the exile when they're living in a new context for a new kind of spirituality. And what is really interesting is after the exile, you see a lot more prayer, fasting, confession. And I think one of the things God is doing is cultivating a new kind of spirituality for the people of God. He's shaping it in in terms of these key themes. For example, fasting, you see moments of it, and sometimes it's involved with lamenting, but fasting really turns up in this last time period. For example, uh, Daniel chapter 9, when he's seeking an answer from God, I turn to the Lord God to seek an answer by prayer and supplication with fasting. Ezra, when they're coming on the way back to Jerusalem, I proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him on a safe journey. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Nehemiah 1, verse 4, when I was fasting and praying before the Lord. I think that what's happening with the people of God here, they've lost the trappings of the monarchy. Remember, we've talked about Judah being a minority position. And when they get desperate, they start to pray and they are fasting. We've had uh, Tim Tennant, when he was a faculty member back at Gordon-Commel, who's now the president at Asbury Seminary. Time of prayer and fasting, I remember. In a great time, I think about um, Barry Corey, president of Biola. He had a whole season of prayer and fasting for Biola. I think it was about a month-long prayer and fast that the whole school was involved in. And I think about someone like a Barry Corey, who is president at Biola, who was a dean at Gordon-Conwell. He was a man of prayer. There was one faculty meeting that he had when he brought all the faculty. We went on a couple of day tour. And then um, we came into this church at the end. It was like a historical two-day tour. And he said to us, would you mind if I prayed for you? As a faculty, I don't know how many faculty were there, 30 or 40 of them. And so he stood up the front, closed his eyes, and he started going through the faculty 
in alphabetical order with no notes through the spouse and through the children and then he'd get to a certain letter and he'd realise he forgot someone and he went back and started praying for them and praying for college and this and this. And there were, People were all in tears there. Right? Man of prayer... And one of the things for me personally, as I read through Chronicles and I see the central role of prayer here and the call which comes throughout the book itself in these next chapters is, what does that mean for us in the season of time that we're living in for the church? What does it mean for us to listen to the Spirit of God and to pray? And I'm personally challenged by it. One of the things I like to do is I have a prayer journal and I like to write things in there for the people when I'm praying for them because that awful feeling of like when someone asks you to pray and they thank you a week later and you're like, oh my gosh, I just completely forgot about it, right? But I also like to pray, see, pray because I fundamentally believe in this prayer journal, that the God is a, it's dialogue with the living God, not monologue. And so God here, Solomon's asking God to hear, but there is also the response of God in prayer. And one of the things, as I've studied in Chronicles and I've looked at the other prayers with Jehoshaphat, we'll look at tomorrow morning in Hezekiah, is that prayer really does matter. I can tell you one um, story with our two boys that always stands out for me in terms of an answer to prayer. When um, a number of years ago, we had been praying about whether we would adopt children. We didn't have our own children. And I was praying one day and felt God say he had siblings for us. And I wrote it down. And I said to my husband, I don't know if this means anything, but I felt like he said he had siblings for us. A week later, we heard about two boys who were in foster care who were living on campus at Gordon Conwell. And people had sent out about a, they'd sent out over a hundred emails asking that God would raise up Christian parents for these two boys. And the boys were older, so they knew it was different. And there were two of them, which is harder. My husband was at the re a retreat and he heard about the two boys. So then on the Monday, we went to meet with the foster parents and we prayed with them. About six weeks later, the boys moved in with us. God, that was an answer to prayer. And this is the living God who speaks. He's going to answer Solomon's prayer because prayer is dialogue, not monologue. So one of the things God has been teaching me as I've been thinking through Chronicles is the importance of hearing the voice of God. And so I like to journal because I want to learn to listen to hear the voice of God. I think about Samuel when Samuel's in the temple and he hears God's voice. 
and he doesn't know it's God. Remember that? So, and it requires discernment to hear the voice of God. The whole temple structure was not about the temple structure. It was about a relationship with the living God through prayer and through dialogue. And so one of the things I want to do is listen to God through the work of his spirit. In Chronicles, in the stories that come up, God speaks through prayer. He speaks through people, prophets, endowed with the spirit. And the question is whether we want to listen and have ears to hear what God is saying. Uh, I was at a retreat about... Last October, um, uh, it was um, a retreat at our church and, and uh, we had an opportunity during the retreat to really pray and sit in the, in the chapel and ask God, did he want to say anything to us? It felt a bit hokey pokey. I had actually just come back from speaking at Biola. I was just, I didn't sleep the night before, I was tired and I'm kind of sitting there, and as clear as day, I felt God say to me, why are you running on the treadmill? I asked God about it a few days later, and um, it resulted, that resulted in me saying no to a commentary on Genesis. I've always, my dream has been to write a commentary on Genesis. The Lord really spoke to me about not doing it and to spend my time on some casket-empty Bible studies to get the word out for the global church. So, the whole narrative here about prayer is underscoring that this is the God who hears and answers prayer. And the other thing that comes up is... People are in need of forgiveness, and God is a gracious God. Forgiveness that is asked for out throughout this chapter, forgiveness is usually through the sacrificial system, through an offering. And here, Solomon is saying, forgive your people, and it's based on God's character. So, the central piece of prayer, but God answers the prayer that is given in this chapter, and this is what he says in chapter 7. Verse 11, Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord. And then verse 12 says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night. He's done all this huge public prayer, wonderful prayer. And then God turns up, at night time, just the two of them. And he says to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And then in verse 14, he's going to say, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. 
Then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. First thing, if they humble themselves, humbling yourself used two ways in the Old Testament. Through military subjection, you get humbled 18 times, half the occurrences of it. The other way is when you humble yourself to do with spiritual submission before God. It's reflexive. You do it to yourself. You humble yourself. 17 of the occurrences of this verb, to humble yourself, reflexive. 13 are in Chronicles. Rehoboam and his men humbled themselves before a prophet, chapter 12. The northern tribes, when we look at Hezekiah, humbled themselves. Manasseh humbled himself. Josiah humbled himself. When they hear the word of God. Last fall, when I'd been working on this, the Lord said to me, you get down. Sorry, what do you mean? (laughs) You get down on your face. And I did. No one was home, just me. You get down and humble yourself before me. When we have our quiet time, I love my coffee. We have our quiet times. We sit and read. I want to encourage us to take postures of humility, myself included. Sometimes it's good just to get on the knees. And sometimes it's good to get flat down. Takes the chips off the shoulders, right? Remember hearing the story of Billy Graham when he would go out to speak to... What would he would do beforehand? Flat on his face. And say, may the Lord make my lips turn to stone if I ever think it's from me. So, first thing, humble yourself. Humbling yourself is not just not being proud. Humbling yourself is submitting yourselves to the word of God in subjection to him. So the opposite of humility is not being proud. It's not turning your neck. Being stiff-necked is the opposite of humility. Being stiff-necked, that someone's, God's trying to tell you to do something and you kind of, you stiffen your neck. You don't want to listen, right? In the same way that when we are receive a rebuke from someone... Stiffening your neck is when you don't listen to the rebuke. Because kings get rebuked by prophets and by the word of God being proclaimed to them. So, humbling yourself. uh, And Zedekiah, the last king, does not humble himself. And you can see where that leads to. Because you either humble yourself before God 
or God humbles you. And we've seen in leadership in the Christian church of people who haven't humbled themselves when they have been confronted with sin. God does not leave a king on his own. When he makes a mistake, someone comes in there and gives a word of rebuke. And either the king is going to listen to the word of rebuke or he's going to dig his heels in and say, I'm the king, who do you think you are? And often when the word of rebuke comes through a prophet, the prophet has no political position, no place of political power. He has spiritual power, but not political power. And so therefore, it is whether he listens to the spirit coming. So uh, humbling yourself. We also have the language, if my people will humble themselves and pray, there's our prayer. We have lots of examples in Chronicles of people praying to God and seek my face, seeking my face or seeking my presence. The language here for seeking my face is used when you seek someone who is lost. When Joseph is seeking to find his brothers, and there is some mystery here that God wants to be found by those who seek him. When you think of a, a parent who plays hide and seek with their child, they hide, but they want to be found. And God wants us to seek him and turn from their wicked ways. So there's a posture of turning toward God, and then he promises that he will hear from heaven, and he will forgive their sin and heal the land. So the answer to the prayer here, and the answer to the prayer is coming in the time of King Hezekiah. We'll see tomorrow morning that this is the place to unpack the answer, actually, this kind of theology here, it's actually going to be through reconciliation. Very, very interesting. But here's the point. God promises to hear and answer prayer by those whose posture is humble before him. Um, David Brooks, uh, in the, the book The Road to Character, talks about the fact that Humility is not really how he would characterize our culture today. I don't know, have anyone read the book? Great, great book. We've seen a broad shift from our culture of humility, the culture of what you might call the big me, from a culture that encouraged people to think humbly of themselves to a culture that encouraged people to see themselves as the center of the universe. And he mentions, I thought this was interesting, Brooks. It talks about a um, Gallup poll, 1950, asked high school seniors if they considered themselves to be a very important person. 12% said yes in 1950. 2005, 80% said yes. <laughs> uh, and that's part of what God was saying to me when I said about humble yourself, you get down. God also was speaking to me about don't need your commentaries. Don't need your casket empty stuff. Can do it without you. 
we don't want to think too highly of ourselves in the sense that this is the work of God and we need to keep our posture humbly, humble posture before him. Sometimes the whole social media, the Facebook, all that kind of stuff just feeds a whole other part of who we are, right, that doesn't need to be fed. So Brooke's great book about um, the importance of humility, prayer and turning to the Lord. So what happens with Solomon? Uh, quick turn to chapter 9. What you notice at the end of his life is an emphasis on the Queen of Sheba comes to see him. Chapter 9 uh, talks about how many shields he has. Chapter 9, verse 15 um, it talks in verse 17 about the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. It talks about it took six steps to get to his throne and the footstool attached to it. He had 12 lions on it. And it emphasizes the wealth and the riches that he has. And verse 25 he had to make 4,000 stalls for his horses and chariots and his horsemen. Now turn back to 1 Chronicles 29. How does David end his life? Who am I? Chapter 29, verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in heaven and the earth is yours. Yours is the dominion. You exalt yourself over all. Verse 14. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. Verse 15. We are sojourners before you, tenants, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand, in all is from yours. You can see the posture of the two of them, the humility that God says that he requires, you see Solomon at the end of his life, great wealth, getting caught up in it, and David, the posture of humility. And as you go through the stories of the kings, you see some kings who start off well and become proud at the end of their lives, and other kings who don't start very well and yet end up humbly. And I think the the reminder here is in the story of Solomon, God wants humility from his people and a humility that you see at the end of their lives in how they have lived their lives. Solomon's idolatry isn't mentioned in Chronicles, but his wealth is, and it will have devastating impact on the kingdom that follows. It will also impact his son Rehoboam, because he's kind of the way he leads his kingdom, you contrast Solomon with King David and you see the posture of someone who is humble 
And I think one of the reasons he is that way is because of the early call in his life and the tragedies and the trials that he went through that shaped him. So, so we think about King Solomon. Emphasis on the building of the temple of prayer, wonderful prayer, but yet at the end of his life he fails terribly and there is the um, failure to humble himself and do the very thing that the prayer has taught him. As ministers of the gospel, we want to exemplify a posture of humility because we don't want to teach something that we're not doing ourselves. And Solomon proclaimed the words without the substance in his own life. And I think one of the things that this, these, this material has been teaching me is learning to walk with the Lord more closely, uh, to seek him more closely. I'm not talking about extended type, but there's a posture of listening to God and of seeking his face. So I would encourage you in your own journey. Let me close this in a word of prayer, and then we're going to have a time for questions. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed the God who hears and answers prayer. And Father, forgive us for trying to do it all ourselves instead of relying upon you and trusting in you. And we thank you, our Father, for the work of your Spirit that prompts us and that stirs in us a love for you and also stirs in us a desire to follow you. And Father, I pray that you would cultivate in us a posture of humility and a posture of prayer, that we might see you work in our lives and we might see the answered prayer as we seek your face and walk with you. So we bless you tonight, Father, and we thank you that you are a God who hears and answers prayer. Amen. Right. A few minutes of questions. You want to finish with something? Do you have questions on? All right. Awesome. Questions. Yep. Uh, we see a couple of times the refrain, he is good. He is good in that section of scripture. And yes. Then, and then Solomon's prayer that all the saints would rejoice in his goodness. Can you just comment on God is good, what, how they're hearing that, what, what that's about? Yes. So um, the Lord is good is a very important and common refrain. Um, uh, yeah. So goodness, I think, speaks to his, there's a moral kind of perfection there with it, but there's also goodness in terms of generosity and um, the, the benefit that God gives. There's a goodness in terms of what he bestows on his people. Um, so um, what else can I say about that? I did, I did quite a lot of work on goodness because of Genesis 6-2. The sons of God saw that the women were good. Uh, and I argued that it wasn't to do with beauty there, but it was a moral quality. Um, so uh, goodness is primarily, there is a few times in the Psalms, but it is primarily attributed to God. So, and obviously um, Genesis 1, you see the Lord saw that it was good, he saw that it was good. Um, so there is a, a moral kind of ethical quality that sets him apart, 
Um, and, but it's also got this idea of a benefit to his people. I, I was struck by your, your thoughts on posture of prayer and how um, I'm troubled a little bit by what we communicate at, in a lack of posture of prayer within the church yeah. when prayer is used as the covering for everybody to get into position for the next <laughs> song. Right, yeah. Um, and how, what we're communicating um, I've only seen one time uh, the pastor kneeling in prayer as he led the congregation. Yeah. Any, any thoughts in um, yeah. public corporate worship? Yeah. So um, we will, um, when we see Jehoshaphat, uh, he kneels before the whole as a leader. So he kneels before them. Um, you don't see it very often, right? Um, Daniel Block talks about it in his book, and again, I think it's one of those things to to think through. Um, uh, a good friend of mine is part of the YWAM, what the discipleship training school, and he spoke about one of their conferences um, um, probably about two years ago, and the 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 guy that heads up the um, the group they had about probably about 80 leaders. Um, Tom Petter talks about the fact that they got to the conference and the first thing the leader did was at the front was got down on his knees and Tom said everyone was like Vroom, down on their knees. Um, it does change your posture. And you, I mean, do we ha here we go. Uh, so I think we need to do more of it in public. I think it starts in private. I mean, I even find in private I'm used to sitting with a coffee cup, right? Sitting and, and you know, there's, there's a, sorry, there's a fellowship with God. So there's something there, but there's also something that is holy. And um, when people come in contact with God, they fall on their faces. And I think we've lost some of that. Um, and I'm going to try it now. You know, here, it, it's, it's not quite the same, right? The, I, I'm already, do you know what I mean? I'm already putting myself down. Some, there's a shift that takes place in a posture that is, and you try on your flat on your face, and you're like, well, this is, I'm only human being here, and you're God. So I think it can be done in, in tasteful ways within a church, but I think there's a place to be able to say to people, if you want to kneel, to kneel, and I think we need to do more of it. Um, thank you. In my own experience in cross-cultural ministry, um, yeah. this has definitely been what I have learned or taken from it. But Lovely. so could you comment on how the global church, Lovely. our brothers and sisters all across the world teach us yeah. and exemplify this? Yeah. Lovely. Yeah, I mean, when I was, I'm trying to think it was last October, I was speaking at Biola and it was on a conference on the kingdom of God. And we, we, I was talking on this about the 
aspect of repentance, and we had talked about it beforehand with um, trying to think the leader of spiritual formation, and um, at the at the end of it, he invited anyone who wanted to kneel before the altar, and I went down with them, and there were a couple hundred of them came forward, to pr- and then it was just beautifully done, and they went and prayed over them. Oh, it was beautiful, meaningful, and there is something sometimes praying at the front or coming to the front too when you're kneeling and, and asking for prayer. There's a just, I think we need more of it. First Chronicles 22, uh, you know, David's, David's piece coming into Solomon and talking about Solomon's rest. Yes. Uh, what are we supposed to be taking from that, I think, particularly of, of the Sabbath and, and God resting in creation? Is there an allusion to that? Yeah, so the, I think the, the, the rest... Narrative? So, yeah, I think um, one of the promises is that you'll have rest from your enemies. So I think that is, I think it's the verb, the one that we picked up there, the verb nuach, to rest. Uh, often it's God resting in the temple as well. And of course, John Walton's done a lot with that, with the Genesis 1 and arguing that God's resting in his temple. Um, so I think rest from enemies is very important um, on a very practical level, but it's also a theological. So it's the whole Joshua narrative and that subduing the land. So this is, and Solomon being a man of, uh, of peace and so forth. So there, it is very important theologically um, with, it is a transition from David to Solomon, I think in that sense. Um, there are going to be more wars come up and you can only get true rest if you have a righteous Davidic king to lead the people because it's connected, their, their well-being is connected with their morality of obedience so it's really a spiritual gauge in the old testament but but yeah it's, it is it's, it is marking a key movement within the narrative yep. yeah i have a question i guess a comment first about humility and the question in this uh this kind of narrative between david and solomon uh david i don't know if he humbled himself as he was humbled by circumstances yep. trials tribulations and so on I can't remember any trials and tribulations as Solomon went through. And then we have the instructions to humble ourselves. And I'm just kind of wondering, um, that humbling, is it necessary to have the trials and tribulations? No. Or um, is there a hope for a Solomon? I think there absolutely. (laughs) I think um, Josiah, for example... Um, young king, I don't think he had any trials, but when he hears the word of God, he tears his garments, right? And it says he humbled himself, and the language used of like his heart, like oil, soft, the Lord. There's tenderness to the... It says he was tender-hearted. It's like the language... There's an oil being used in his heart. There's a, a softness there to his heart, in his heart, to the word of God. So... You absolutely don't need trials to humble yourself. Um, But if you don't humble yourself, God can use circumstances like Manasseh, right, that he does humble himself. And and ultimately, here's the real thing, the humility of God, right? I mean, Manasseh's done all that. 
God humbles himself, actually doesn't use the language, but he's, he answers his prayer. You might want to think, so there's a humility of God, actually. And um, this is Richard um, Borkham's book, God Crucified, The Humility of God. And so I think there's a humility of God. I mean, there's a humility of God that he even hears and answers our prayers. All right. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man you care for him? So, so I think, no, you, it, it's, it's reflexive. You do it to yourself. It's a posture that you can choose to do, submitting to the will of God. You know, not my will, but your will. Of course, Jesus, the Philippians, you know, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Um, so... Um, So we therefore, humbling ourselves, listening to counsel around us is part of how humbling happens. What is it? We'd feel good about ourselves, yep. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's, it's, not the, it's not what we're designed to be. The human posture is meant to be humble because we're not God, <laughs> right? The humble posture says, you're God and I'm a human being. And that's, we're designed for that. So you're not going to get the fulfillment through the other. You know, and, and really the story that happens with like um, books of Daniel is you don't humble yourself, right? You become more animal-like, not more human. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm still fascinated and resonating with the Second Chronicles 7.14, which was a very popular prayer around 1998 right. and the late 90s in particular, yeah. but uh, not going necessarily back there, but looking at that prayer, um, and the, the prayer is a promise with a condition, yeah. and the promise is the healing of the land. Theologically, scripturally, yeah. biblically, where do you see the land being healed? Yeah, okay. So, so when you look at the language of healing... First of all, the term for healing can be used of um, physical healing, sickness. The language of healing is also used of um, healing to do with spiritual type healing. So that's one in terms of you don't usually get land as the object. So that's one. The commentary on 2 Chronicles 7.14 is... Um, Second Chronicles chapter 30 with King Hezekiah. Okay? Like, so I'm answering your question, what does it mean? Um, in Second Chronicles chapter 30, um, Hezekiah invites the northern kingdom 
to the Passover. These are his enemies because they've just, they've just come against the southern kingdom. And he calls them and what happens is they decide to join the Passover and it says they humbled themselves and all the vocabulary, they returned, all the vocabulary from 2 Chronicles 7.14 turns up. But um, Hezekiah prays for them and they're healed. And he's praying for them because they haven't consecrated themselves. Restoration is actually what's in view in chapter 30. So healing, what is the healing that's taking place in that chapter? It's restoration of enemies. So um, I think the land, um, I know that we can use it in, in our specific context. I think the, the call here is prayer really matters. We want to see God work, it's through prayer. The healing, I think, that takes place, I think is, um, it can be physical, but I think it's also got a spiritual component to it. So I don't know if that answered it as specifically, but um, we want to see renewal. I think prayer is, and this is, I think these people after the exile are getting it. Nehemiah. Remember, he prays for three months before he goes up. When he, remember when he's, he's asked to go back to Susa, the work that he does, it's, through, it's bathed in prayer. You can see it throughout Daniel. He's praying three times a day. He's under the... Again, I think this is how you deal with when you're under a foreigner, when you're the minority, it's prayer. And of course, we can look at our own African-American history in terms of the, the prayer that was cultivated during those seasons. So, so it's a prayer that's already... Fulfilled and not yet. Once again, yeah, I think I think um, uh, I think its initial um, application in Hezekiah suggests suggests some nuancing. It's not you know because of the, the nature of it. So I think that's one, and I think it is a call because it's reiterated throughout Chronicles the call for a humble posture, and that's of course the prayer of repentance, right? Is humility. And God hears that prayer. And I think there's healing. So I think, I think that continues into the New Testament in terms of the prayers of repentance that God hears that brings healing. So, Thank you. Yep. Um, I've been thinking about the blessings and the huge problems that come from any one nation seeing itself as the promised land. Yes. Um, back in the 90s, heal our land. Again, I heard that in a very nationalistic American yeah. context. Um, and see, sorry, just in answering that too, you see, remember I'm Australian. Yes. So I don't, I, I know of it, but I don't resonate in the, and that might be why I'm, you know, I, I don't, it, it, I'm Australian. <laughs> And also think of that. <laughs> I like Vegemite, you know. I, I think of the Afrikaans culture, yeah. you know, and they very much saw themselves as a chosen people yeah. in a new land, yeah. which meant displacing indigenous peoples. Yeah. Um, and it honestly scares me, uh, this whole humility thing yeah. scares me given our current political leadership, right. if in fact we are under the same system. Right. So um, how do you deal with all that? 
with the, with all the political stuff? Well, the, the whole sense of promised land, the whole sense of any one country seeing itself as the promised land, how do we use these texts responsibly? Uh, yeah, because obviously Mark Laberton, I'll leave it for him because he's talked about it in his book. <laughs> <laughs> and that is like Solomon's wisdom there. Thank you so much. You can leave it for Mark. That's a great question for Mark. I, this whole time I actually thought you were Irish, not Australian.